Welcome back, listeners, for Circulating Spaces' 10th episode, The Climate of World Literature, with our guest, Amitav Ghosh. I'm Ankita Chakravarti. And I'm Christian Howard. Circulating Spaces is a podcast dedicated to exploring what it means to engage with literature as a global community. And we're coming at you from the University of Virginia and the Public Humanities Lab, which is generously funded by the Institute of the Humanities and Global Cultures. Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes. Today, we're going to jump right into things and introduce our guest, Amitav Ghosh, a world-renowned author of critically acclaimed novels, such as The Circle of Reason, The Shadow Lines, In an Antique Land, Dancing in Cambodia, The Calcutta Chromosome, The Glass Palace, The Hungry Tide, and The Ivis Trilogy, which includes The Sea of Puppies, River of Smoke, and Flood of Fire. His most recent book is a work of nonfiction, The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and The Unthinkable. His novels have won numerous illustrious awards, such as the Sahitya Academy Award. The Arthur C. Clarke Award has been shortlisted for the Man Booker Award, to name just a few. And most recently, in December of 2018, he was awarded the Gyanpeet Award, which is India's highest literary honor. Huge congratulations for this. Thank you. We're so excited and honored to have you on our show. Oh, it's a great pleasure for me. Thank you for having me. So let's get right into the interview. Um, Could you briefly tell us about your professional trajectory? How did you launch your career and how did you become a professional writer? (laughs) Well, that's a long story, really. But, uh, you know, uh, I'd always wanted to wanted to write. Uh, I suppose it began uh, really as far back as school, where I did a lot of writing, high Mm -hmm. school, I mean. Uh, So I went, uh, uh, I was in college in Delhi. And, uh, you know, at that point in India, there really was no such thing as a literary career, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you wrote in English. There just wasn't any such thing. So the day I finished my undergraduate degree, I started applying for jobs in journalism mm-hmm. because journalism, you know, it seemed close to a literary career, you mm-hmm. know, something literary. At least mm-hmm. there was some writing. Uh, yeah. So I I, I I got a job as a, a, you know, as an apprentice a uh, newspaper man mm-hmm. in Delhi at at a uh, at a newspaper called the Indian Express. Mm-hmm. So I was there for a bit, and then I sort of drifted back into um, uh, into doing an MA. Uh, at that point, I realized that you know that sort of day to day journalism really wasn't working for me. I was not uh, you know though I learned a lot from it, and I felt very grateful for it. But, uh, you know, that day-to-day sort of uh, reporting wasn't uh, that interesting to me. You know, I needed more time to do the writing and so on. Mm -hmm. So so I was back in Delhi University. I I finished an MA. And then I applied for these. uh, You know, I I was really desperately keen to travel, Mm -hmm. you know, to see something of the world. So I applied for uh, a scholarship um, to to Oxford, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got it, <laughs> much to my amazement. And again, that was just pure luck because mm-hmm. uh, I was uh, I was twelfth on a list of ten, you mm-hmm. know. But fortunately, two people dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was I'm, meant to be. <laughs> yes, they got scholarships to uh, you know American universities. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the first time I was really grateful to America. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I got the scholarship. I went to Oxford, and um, <clears throat> at the end of it, I had a degree. Uh, I had a PhD in anthropology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was only there for like three years and a few months, but you know, um, I worked very hard, mm-hmm. and I spent uh, I spent a year in between in Egypt in mm-hmm. a in a mm-hmm. small village. And then I went back to India, and uh, you know, all, all this while, really, what I wanted to do was to write. It was to write novels because mm-hmm. I, I, I think it was because I loved to read novels. So when I got back to India straight away, I started working on my first novel, which mm-hmm. was called The Circle of Reason. Mm-hmm. So then, after a while, you know, for a while, I managed sort of doing, uh, you know, some teaching, some university stuff, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, but really, writing was the main thing I did. And, uh, you know, for really most of my life, I- I've uh, really made my living from writing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been my uh, principal, that's been my principal occupation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I-, I think that's something which uh, really amazes me in retrospect, because, you know, uh, 
the ways in which the writing world has changed, it's uh, it's not easy to make a living from writing. There are very mm-hmm. few people who actually do it. Mm-hmm. So I consider myself very, very lucky to mm-hmm. be among them. Mm-hmm. So, um, so when you ha- had the idea to, you know, for your first novel, like, how did you think of like moving from writing a PhD to becoming a novelist? How how did you like come up with the first? idea for your for your novel well you know at that point in time I was really interested in uh, you know I wanted to sort of write about uh, about say the sorts of displacement that I and my family mm-hmm. uh, have been through you know mm-hmm. my family was originally from Bangladesh mm-hmm. they moved to India and you know because of the circumstances of my childhood I, uh, you know, my family was constantly on the move. I went to boarding school mm-hmm. in northern India. So uh, I wanted to think about this whole way, uh, you know, this whole process of this this uh, movement, if you like. Mm-hmm. So my first novel was really just about that. It mm-hmm. was uh, about um, uh, Indian workers mm-hmm. going to work in the Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the sort of, um, well, that was the kernel of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I suppose it was also because, you know, I'd spent uh, a year in Egypt. I uh, I spoke Arabic. Mm -hmm. I had a sort of real engagement with the Middle East. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to write about that. And I wanted to write about, you know, India's connections with the Middle East Mm -hmm. and how they came about. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So would you say that you have any literary predecessors or that you've been influenced by any writers? Certainly, I think I have many, many predecessors. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, B.S. Naipaul mm-hmm. is a very major mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, when I was uh, your, your age or younger, you know, uh, when I was a teenager, I loved to read. But there were very few uh, books uh, written by Indians that were actually in circulation at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Naipaul, uh, of course, he he's not he wasn't Indian, but he was of Indian origin. Uh, he was a huge presence, uh, you know, in my life, uh, uh, in my teens and twenties. Uh, and Naipaul is the quintessential writer traveler, mm-hmm. you know. And I think really he, uh, I mean, he inspired in me this this whole idea that I have to that I have to see the world, that I have to travel. Mm-hmm. Naipaul, and certainly again, James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. James Baldwin, again, was a very uh, was a very important um, sort of influence on me. Uh, uh, you know, and again, Baldwin was this great traveler. He was everywhere, he, you know. Mm-hmm. And I loved uh, especially Baldwin's essays. I think they're mm-hmm. very, very powerful. Notes of a Native Son, I remember that. I read that when I was about 17, and it had a huge impact on me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's just two names. I mm-hmm. could give you so many more, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because I was, I was kind of a voracious reader and I read a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, we've read one of your earlier works, In an Antique Land, which I found really difficult to classify, right? It draws on, uh, on and discusses your work as a historian and social anthropologist during your time in Egypt that you mentioned as a doctoral student. But it also incorporates fictional elements and stylistic features um, in order to construct the historical narrative that is in the book. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, what was the rationale behind this particular work? Um, well, it's, you know, I, I finished uh, that book here in Charlottesville. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, I wrote most of it, actually. Here. I really like that one. It's oh, just... thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, you know, that's actually my third book. I've mm-hmm. written two novels before that. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, you know, uh, I was exhausted with writing fiction. And I mm-hmm. wanted to write nonfiction. And, you know, that whole that whole experience that anthropologists went through once upon a time of mm-hmm. being just placed in the middle of nowhere. I mean, uh, not that it's nowhere, but mm-hmm. you're just cut off from, you know, all known mm-hmm. You know channels of communication, so I was there in this uh, small village in uh, in northern Egypt. Uh, you know, my Arabic was very rudimentary mm-hmm. when I arrived. Uh, it got much better, but mm-hmm. uh, in those days, of course, you know, there were no cell phones or anything like mm-hmm. that, and so 
you know, it was a complete sort of immersion, uh, really. Mm. And in its own way, it was kind of, uh, I would say it was kind of traumatic in, uh, you know, I mean, that sort of sudden sort of removal. But it's not just uh, for me. I think uh, everyone who's been through that experience of doing field work in this mm. way will say the same thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, in a way, those memories, those experiences uh, sort of constantly haunted me, you know, I, so I needed to write about them. And finally, one day I sat down and I started writing. But, you know, I didn't want it to be just about uh, about me. And it, it is actually the case that the reason I went to Egypt was because I came upon these letters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a letter of a medieval merchant. So then I I decided that I would write this book. Uh, in this way, so that it would be like a helical narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, spanning a great Mm -hmm. sort of distance in time, Mm -hmm. 800 years really, you Mm -hmm. know, so that it would completely uh, be across time Mm -hmm. in this way. So uh, that's how it began, uh, really. But I can't even tell you uh, the sorts of difficulties that I had to face in writing that book, because... Mm -hmm. You know uh, this this other narrative, the narrative based on the on the trader, the medieval mm-hmm. Jewish trader whose name is Abraham Ben Giju. Mm-hmm. I had initially thought that all his letters had been translated into English, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so I thought they were all uh, in a library in Princeton. Mm-hmm. And I went there and I I met the man who was in charge of this library. He's, a, mm-hmm. he's become a good friend over the years, Professor Mark Cohen, and I said to him. Um, uh, you know, can I look at these translations? Uh, and he said, yes, there are translations, but you can't look at them because they're, uh, they're, you know, there was a, some stipulation that nobody could look at them. So I said, what do I do then? So he said, well, you have to learn the language. <laughs> and the language is, was, is a Judeo-Arabic, oh you know, which is Arab, uh, medieval Arabic written in the mm-hmm. Hebrew script. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at that point, there were very few people who worked on this mm-hmm. uh, on this very obscure uh, language. So I had to sit down and teach myself this language wow. <laughs> in order to translate these letters. And that was quite a feat, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we noticed about In an Antique Land is that it, it seems actually kind of similar to our work uh, here as public humanities. Um as a public humanities initiative, and that it does extend your own academic research and bring it to a wider audience. Um, so do you feel that you're actively trying to engage with public humanities work? Um, and if so, how would you describe your engagement with the public humanities? Um, uh, there was, um, uh, I should say straight away that the book didn't, uh, is not in any sense an mm-hmm. academic book. Mm-hmm. Right. I was not an academic at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the book was actually... You know, uh, it emer- the whole context of it uh, was really completely non-academic in the mm-hmm. sense that uh, I, I got the uh, I I got some money uh, to uh, I got a gra- uh, an advance uh, mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, to work on it, but it came from um, a really a commercial publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an editor called Bill Buford. Mm-hmm. He used to run a very influential magazine called uh, Granta. Mm-hmm which was a very influential magazine for a long time. Uh, so he basically, I one day we met for breakfast in New York, and he asked me, uh, what, do you, what, what, do you, what are you thinking of working on? And I told him. And he, you know, it was a minuscule grant, really. It was like 10,000 pounds or something. Mm-hmm. And this book took me years, you know. But... Uh, you know, it allowed me to start. It allowed it. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to make a beginning, and uh, you know, uh, you just mentioned the novelistic elements. Uh, one thing I can say about this book with absolute certainty is mm-hmm. that it, uh, there's nothing in it that's fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, everything, even the conversations, came out of my notes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I am a writer of fiction, I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm especially attentive to the distinction, mm-hmm. right. you know, between fiction and nonfiction. And this book was certainly not mm-hmm. uh, fiction in any sense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, and you're right. I think people find it very difficult to categorize. Yeah. And somehow, uh, uh, you know, the subtitle that the publishers chose for it, 
has become its own category. It's something like a traveler's tale or history in the guise of a traveler's tale. <laughs> yes, you know. it, there were a few what? <laughs> yes, which was not my. It, it had nothing to do with me, but the publisher. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, so uh, you know, the whole context of it was also that in this particular period, you know, ni- uh, the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, this was a very exciting period for uh, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there were many writers uh, really doing extraordinary stuff in, mm-hmm. with nonfiction. The name that comes uh, most immediately to mind is Bruce Chatwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of his works, but, uh, well, he's the ultimate global novelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really extraordinary, extraordinary writer. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, he uh, he was doing very exciting things. In, um, in One of his books that was very inspiring to me was called uh, in patagonia hmm. uh so so you know it, uh, at that moment it was possible within commercial publishing mm-hmm. you know to take this kind of path mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. especially because granta as a magazine was very influential and they were publishing things of this kind uh, rajat kapushinsky mm-hmm. who was also a very brilliant uh, uh, journalist non-fiction writer mm-hmm. so you know it came out of that sort of context at mm-hmm. that moment and uh, but I must say uh, it the book had an extraordinary career because uh, you know when it came out uh, it it uh, you know as people say in the publishing publishing world it sank like a stone it had <laughs> almost no reviews uh, that you is know. so surprising <laughs> yeah it was it was really kind of terribly depressing but you know strangely over the years it found a larger and larger and larger audience. And it probably circulates more today than it did 30 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. when I wrote it. It's an amazing mm-hmm. thing. It's, uh, you know, very few books actually have that long a lifetime, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it's, uh, you know, people read it. I, just the other day, I, where was I? I? I was in Washington uh, at Georgetown University, and someone said to me that, you know, that book reads like it was written for today. Mm. I loved it when I was reading it oh, because really? it, because it, it reads like fiction, but I know it's not fiction. It just it seems like such a different kind of a work. So I loved it when I when I oh, read that's it. That's great. Thank um, you. So uh, you said before that you spend a lot of time um, conducting research for your fictional novels, including the Ibis trilogy. So we're wondering: Does the fictional work come out of your research, or do you start with an idea and then learn more about the background and the history of the project? In other words, like what is your imaginative and creative process um, with respect to your writing? Um, you know, I think all writers do research. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just me. Um, uh, but you know, I, I just uh, did an event with uh, Annie Prue. You know. Mm-hmm who wrote uh, Brokeback Mountain, The mm-hmm. Shipping News, and all that. And she was talking about the research she does, and mm-hmm. she does enormous amounts of research for her work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Melville did research mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. his work. You yeah. know I mean? Uh, writers mm-hmm. do a lot of research anyway. Uh, in my case, I suppose it's uh, the thing that I really took away from doing a DFIL, a PhD, mm-hmm. uh, is... Uh, that, uh, you know, libraries hold no terrors for me. <laughs> you know? yeah. And once you've learned Judeo-Arabic, you know, really, no arcana can really scare you, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, once I get into it, I enjoy research. Research mm-hmm. is fun. I like getting into the research mm-hmm. and everything. Actually, it's so much more fun than writing uh, uh, uh-huh. fiction, which is, you know, often incredibly difficult right. and stressful. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, you know, research is just the background. Mm-hmm. Research is not... Uh, I mean, no one is going to read a novel for the research. Right, yeah. yeah. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, so, I mean, no matter how well you write, do your research, it's not going to carry a novel. I mean, mm-hmm. the novel has to be... Uh, no matter what it's about, mm-hmm. it has to have its own uh, innate strength in mm-hmm. its characters, in its narrative, mm-hmm. in its, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, in all of that. So, research is interesting. I... Um, you know, sometimes I enjoy it, but uh, in the end, uh, you know, a novel is a novel, and that's what that's mm-hmm. what makes it what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, switching gears a little bit here, um, in 2016, you published your collection of essays, "The Great Derangement: Climate Change and the Unthinkable," and you've um, said in an interview here at UVA 
that more than a call to action, this was um, an active introspection for you on your own practices as a novelist. Um, so what do you mean by this active introspection? Well, uh, you know, uh, well, let me step back a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, in the year 2000, I started working on a novel called The Hungry Tide, mm -hmm. which is set in the Sundarbans mm -hmm. in India. It's a huge mangrove uh, forest. And at that time, uh, while I was traveling there and reading about it and uh, so on, I became aware of the extent of, you know, of climate change. And I mm -hmm. could already see then the mm -hmm. sorts of impacts that climate change was having, mm -hmm. you know, on the Sundarbans. And that's, you know, almost 20 years ago now. But you could see the effects of saltwater intrusion. Mm -hmm. You could see, you know, all these uh, all these impacts. So I became, that was when I began to be interested, you know, in this whole issue of climate change. And in the years since, you know, I think for everyone who pays attention to these things, uh, there comes a time when you sort of go beyond interest and anxiety to full-fledged panic. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. uh, there's really no getting away from that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at a certain point, I began uh, asking myself, you know, why have these issues not entered my work in a more frontal way, even though they do enter mm -hmm. the hungry tide, uh, you know, in some way? Uh, I mean, why is it that they also don't enter, uh, in general, the literary world? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. why is the literary world so uh, closed mm -hmm. to these issues? Yeah. Uh, so, because, you know, writers and especially, you know, the writers of literary fiction and so on often pride themselves on their political engagements. Mm -hmm. And they do have very important political engagements. I mean, you know, writers were at the head of all the major uh, identity issues of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, you know, feminism, uh, gay rights, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so many, uh, so many of these issues. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, so I asked myself, why is it that uh, climate is so completely, mm -hmm. uh, is so marginal, mm -hmm. right? you know? And the only way I could answer that was by trying to look at my own practices, mm -hmm. you know? So it's in that sense that I mean, it's a, it's an, uh, it's an act of introspection. Mm -hmm. So um, this year, your new book, Gun Island, which is being referred to as a cli-fi or a climate fiction, is going to come out, and we can't wait to get yeah. our hands on it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book? I don't know who has referred to it as cli-fi. <laughs> I, I, I came across quite a few um, uh, uh, Let me tell you straight articles. away uh, that it is not uh, it's a climate not. fiction. It's not cli-fi. <laughs> I mean, I think that whole term is utterly absurd. I don't know. It's honestly. just... Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, no, it's it's just a novel, but it's mm -hmm. a novel uh, and uh, the world that we live in mm -hmm. is in the background of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, but it's certainly not anything like that, uh, of that kind. Mm -hmm. I mean, I completely uh, disown uh, those labels. <laughs> and I think you would too. If anything, uh, I would say its real engagement is with history. Mm -hmm. okay. It's with the past, mm -hmm. you know. That is good to know because I came across so many... Um, short articles which were like anticipating really? your novel and they were referring it to as cli-fi and I was like it's oh, not at all that's interesting okay that's good to know <laughs> it's not at all no well and and I don't know if this uh, kind of intersects with that or 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 not but um thinking about the journey from the great derangement to gun island um in the great derangement you note um and I quote it is a striking fact that when novelists do choose to write about climate change it is almost always outside of fiction, end quote. Uh, so in light of this statement, how would you describe your plan of action or the inspiration behind Gun Island if it does incorporate um, some of these elements? Um, and what kind of intervention do you see your new novel as making in the field of contemporary literature? Um, you know, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I just uh, mentioned Annie Proulx. <laughs> And actually, the event that we did, uh, which was at the Library of Congress, was about uh, was about climate and fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, largely about that. And it, uh, you know, Annie has been very uh, engaged in climate issues and in thinking about climate and in uh, reading. I, I didn't know this uh, I, uh, until a short while ago, but. Uh, she's profoundly sort of in, engaged with it, and as she says. Uh, she said there, 
what I think any of anyone who's been engaged in climate issues would mm-hmm. say that once you start thinking about these about this issue, once you start reading about it, you really can't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just uh, uh, I mean, it's just impossible to think about anything else because mm-hmm. it's so pressing, so urgent, uh, so you know, all encompassing, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Uh, and she said that, you know, uh, one of the things she said also, which was very striking to me, she said uh, uh, that uh, she's not going to write a novel again hmm. because she feels that she can't address climate uh, through fiction. Uh, and she's only going to write essays about it. Hmm. And you'll see this again and again, that many writers actually, when they come to writing about climate, uh, tend to write uh, essays, really. Hmm. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I could give you many examples. Mm-hmm. So I think that, again, is a question, really. Why? I mean, mm-hmm. why is it uh, that... Uh, but in my case, uh, um, you know, uh, my my new book, Gun Island, uh, is a book... Um, I mean, it's a novel, mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's completely a novel. And it's a novel that comes, uh, you know... The, it's a novel that's very attentive and aware of the world that we live in. That's all that, that's all that I would say. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I uh, so much, uh, 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 why I completely want to separate myself from this whole idea of climate fiction or mm-hmm. sci-fi, you know, genres bring with them certain expectations. Mm -hmm. And cli-fi, climate fiction, uh, dystopian fiction, Mm -hmm. uh, what is it? Now there's another one called uh, solar fiction or something. I heard. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, I just heard these new terms. I mean, they're like, like, you know, uh, 10,000 terms. Right, yes. But all of them bring with them uh, certain expectations, Mm -hmm. you know, which is of dystopias, of uh, breakdown, of Mm -hmm. all those things. Uh, which are completely distant from my work, right. you know, or from mm-hmm. my engagements um, or my imaginings, you mm-hmm. know. So it's in that sense that I I feel no continuity, whatever, uh, you know, mm-hmm. with that sort of work. Um, uh, what do I hope, uh, uh, your question was, what uh, do I hope uh, my book will do? I don't know. I, 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 really, I really can't say. The one thing I can say is that you know, uh, I know that in the climate community, especially among scientists and so on, mm-hmm. there's a general belief that uh, storytelling is the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> they think that if yeah. you can tell the best possible stories, that may make a Convince great change people. in the world. Yes. <laughs> uh, having been a storyteller for a long time, <laughs> I, 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 I hate to say to them that, you know, please don't believe that. <laughs> no, really I want to believe that. Simple. that. <laughs> It's really not that simple. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think, look, I, again, one of the <laughs> issues uh, where I would like to distance myself from this whole thing of, uh, mm-hmm. about dystopian fiction, future mm-hmm. fiction, whatever, mm-hmm. is that many of those writers do actually think of themselves as uh, doing uh, activism or outreach or, mm-hmm. or whatever. To me, on the other hand, it seems that, uh, you know, if you sit down to write a novel with a pedagogic intent, mm-hmm. uh, really, it, it becomes a kind of propaganda. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes yeah. a jit prop. And uh, you defeat the purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone is going to pick up a novel because it's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, as it were, made uh, some subject, uh, you know, more palatable or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think that happens. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's the wrong place yeah. uh, to come out of. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not how, that's not how novelists, mm-hmm. serious novelists write novels. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of your fiction incorporates mapping in transnational movement and a deep investment in questions of space. And there's something that I'm personally very intrigued by. So quite a few of your novels include actual maps in them with travel routes and lines of connection marked on them. So what has been your interest in global movement and travel and kind of showing that through your or exploring that through your fiction? You know, that was my uh, that was my fundamental engagement. Uh, That's been one of my basic engagements, uh, you know, throughout my writing life. Uh, as, as I said, my first book, Circle of Reason, mm-hmm. was about that. And to you today, this may not sound uh, strange, you know, that someone should have this interest. Uh, but uh, 30 years ago, when I started writing, it was very strange. Mm-hmm. 
uh, people wrote about places. People wrote about the places they knew. They, you know, mm-hmm. that was a time when you know uh, John Updike was writing about suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know, English novelists were exploring what it meant to be English. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, German novelists were exploring uh, Germanness mm-hmm. and so on. You know, so it was a very. It was, and I, I saw this in the reviews as well that it was. This was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. You know, that. Um, I was not writing about just one place. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you think about it, even the magical realists mm-hmm. were really writing about single places. I yeah. mean, uh, Garcia Marquez is mm-hmm. perhaps the best example. I mean, so much of his work is about one mm-hmm. town or village, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Macondo, mm-hmm. Uh, you know. And he's able to invest it with such mm-hmm. wide meanings. But at the end of the day, it is about one place, you know. Mm-hmm. So in that sense... This kind of book, uh, I mean, my kind of story, which is really, I mean, which really grows out of my own experience Mm -hmm. and and really the experience of, I would say, uh, maybe 30% of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, middle class Indians, you know, which is one of displacement Mm -hmm. of, you know, having family all over the world, this, that, you know, I mean, that's, that is contemporary Mm -hmm. experience, really. Mm -hmm. But it's not just our experience, really. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, America, it's a nation of mm-hmm. immigrants. You know, right. every American has a story that ultimately leads elsewhere. So, you know, once you think about it, uh, it becomes evident that it's not displacement and travel and journeys that are cur- that are the exception. Mm-hmm. It's staying in place that is the exception. True. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know? So how did it come to be that for for a long time the novel was so much linked to mm-hmm. stationariness? Right. I mean that is really the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and this this intersects with one of my own interests in um, global literature. So to, I, I found a great quote in uh, the Great Derangement again, and you state that the forces of weather and geology quote mock the discontinuities and boundaries of the nation-state, even as these connections defy the boundedness of place, creating continuities of experience between Bengal and Louisiana, New York and Mumbai, Tibet and Alaska, end quote. So how might you characterize global literature, and what would you say the relationship is between global narratives and nature, or the forces of weather, uh, more specifically? Look, uh... I'm not uh, very comfortable with, uh, uh, you know, these labels like global literature, mm-hmm. or, you know, and there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I do what I do, uh, you know, uh, right. and, you know, others are free to label it as they please. But uh, so what is absolutely clear today, you know, it's one of the sort of really stark realities of the world we live in is the strange way in which uh, experience has become so globalized, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about it today. You know, Mozambique, this terrible uh, uh, flood, Mm -hmm. and the Midwest, this terrible flood. I mean, Mm -hmm. you see immediately the continuity, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, I'm from Bengal which is a land of floods, mm-hmm. you know, we've lived through these floods forever. I mean, they're absolutely imprinted on my, um, on my brain. And, uh, you know, just even reading the coverage of the Mozambique floods, you know, was so reminiscent to me of, uh, of Bengal, because what were the people doing in Mozambique? They were trying to climb onto trees mm-hmm. and roofs, mm-hmm. you know, which is exactly how, mm-hmm. uh, what happens in Bengal in the aftermath of a cyclone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is one of the really curious things uh, of this era, you know. And it makes sense, it'll make sense to you only if I sort of say, if I explain that, you know, 30 years ago, there was a huge gap in experience uh, between uh, what we uh, in the global south lived through and mm-hmm. what people in the global north lived through. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, their worlds were safe, uh, they were, you know, all protected, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Th- they weren't at the mercy of weather events. I remember whenever we had a flood or some sort of terrible storm uh, in India, we would get letters from, uh, you know, messages of concern from all our friends in the West. Oh, I hope you're all right. Mm-hmm. Whether it was floods or terror attacks, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, in those days, India was, comp- I mean, in the 80s when I was living in Delhi, 
uh, India was convulsed by terrorism, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, really, we would get these messages all the time. And it's so striking to me now that it's completely changed, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I remember the other day writing to, a, you know, when the Lake District had its terrible floods. Mm-hmm. The Lake District is so emblematic of a certain kind of uh, controlled nature, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Uh, so English, mm-hmm. so, you know, Wordsworth here. Yeah, and, right. uh, and there they were <laughs> with this terrible flood. And it wasn't just there. It was all over Devon, Devonshire, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, people and so suddenly there I was writing letters to my English friends, <laughs> saying I hope you're Are you all okay? right. <laughs> you know, and uh, remember the Paris floods. Mm-hmm. Again, one was writing letters. Mm-hmm. So it's strange, you know. Or for example, during Hurricane Sandy, mm-hmm. you know, because nobody in New York had lived through an experience like that, mm-hmm. and suddenly, you know, I was the one who was who knew what it was like to live through uh, cyclones and hurricanes and mm-hmm. so on, you know. So it's so strange. I mean, that the, there has been, as it were, you know, a kind of globalization of mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. and it's really been brought about, brought, you know, been brought about by these uh, atmospheric changes that we are seeing. Mm-hmm. To kind of go off of that. Um this increase in sharing of experiences, we were wondering how your own experiences as a transnational traveler has influenced your writing, especially your fiction. Oh, enormously. Enormously. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that is what my fiction is. <laughs> yeah. It reflects my experience, mm-hmm. you know, of, uh, of, of being in this world in the, in the way that I've been in this world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't really expatiate on that thing beyond saying that, you know, that's mm-hmm. what my fiction comes out of, mm-hmm. you know, out of this experience of, you know, uh, looking at the world as someone who's been in many places mm-hmm. and also someone whose own family history is one of displacement and, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So. Um, well, I'm curious about kind of language here as well, right? So um, this past December, when you received the Jan Pith Award, uh, it was noted that you are the first English language writer to win this award. Um, so what would you say that your winning of the Jan Pith Award means for English language writers in India? I think it's been very, it's something very, very significant and mm-hmm. very important. I mean, first of all, I should explain to you, you know, what the Jan Pith is, really. Mm-hmm. Because it's, uh, I, I don't think it has any equivalent, really. Mm-hmm. Because it's, um, it's like... Uh, if it were the Pulitzer and the NBA and all of those uh, run together, mm-hmm. it just has an enormous, enormous, uh, it's, you know, it goes back 56 years or something. Mm-hmm. And it, within Indian literary life, it it just is uh, an enormously respected uh, institution, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and it's the only sort of Indian literary institution that really reaches across languages mm-hmm. and reaches deep into the countryside, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, uh, even uh, in villages and so on, people will pay attention to the, uh, you know, to the Gyanpeet uh, uh, awardee. I mean, mm-hmm. it carries a kind of, how shall I say, I, I don't even know how to say it, but a kind of weight, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which I think uh, there's nothing comparable, mm-hmm. uh, really, in, in, in that I can think of, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to remember the Gyanpeet is awarded across 19 languages. Mm-hmm. You know, and it has uh, again that makes it almost unique, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it has uh, this whole ju- incredibly rigorous jury process of the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, many of the finest literary scholars in India. Mm-hmm. So altogether, you know, it's something which is uh, quite remarkable, especially in India where institutions sometimes don't last very long. Mm-hmm. But this one has really had a long, long track record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. The Gyanpeet, uh, you know, uh, was intended uh, for all the Indian languages, uh, mm-hmm. and English is considered one of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, one uh, major mm-hmm. language in India. But, you know, as I was saying to you earlier, when uh, when I was in my teens and twenties, uh, the idea of writing a novel about India in English was considered, mm-hmm. uh, you know, considered weird. Mm-hmm. Um, unacceptable almost, you know, and it was certainly looked down upon very Mm -hmm. much, you know, and I, I grew up with that, you know, and, uh, you know, 
growing up with that, you sort of accept that, you know, one of the real uh, one of the real joys of a writer's life is when, you know, there's a community of readership that mm-hmm. embraces you, you know, mm-hmm. and for whom, as it were, you speak, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you speak to them and, and through them and for yeah. them and so on. And I thought that would never come my way. You know, I mean, uh, you sort of mm-hmm. accept almost that that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So when this, when the Gyanpeet happened, it was very moving for me mm-hmm. because, you know, it felt that, uh, you know, there is a community of readers mm-hmm. uh, that really uh, can embrace, uh, you know, my work in that way. Mm-hmm. So it was very important for me. And I think it opens a, a huge uh, portal mm-hmm. because, look, I mean, the reality is that a lot of good writing is done in India in yeah. English. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't shut your eyes to it forever. Right. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, you could say that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that wasn't the case. But today, yeah. a, a, an enormous amount of good work mm-hmm. is done in India, in English. And I would, you know, the other irony, of course, is that, you know, I would say maybe 50% or more of the mm-hmm. major writers in, in India, uh, across the languages, mm-hmm. are actually uh, teachers of, of English. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're certainly all of them extremely well read in, <laughs> yeah. in yeah. English. Many of them are teachers of English, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same time, it has to be acknowledged that English around the world and in India has gained a position of such hegemony mm-hmm. that there's a lot of resentment as well, right. you know, against the sort of hegemony that English exercises. Mm-hmm. And I think this is not entirely misplaced uh, because, you know, I'm bilingual. I grew up speaking Bengali, and Bengali has been enormously important to me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, throughout my writing career. Mm-hmm. You know, it served as an inspiration, uh, you know, and uh, really it's been a, just a, a absolutely fundamental part mm-hmm. of my life as a writer. So, you know, I see, I can see it from both ends, and uh, I can see why, uh, you know, Writers in languages like Bengali and Kannada and Malayalam and, uh, you know, so many other languages often resent uh, uh, English language writers as, uh, you know, because they feel that they're arrogant, that they don't mm-hmm. uh, take the time to read uh, Indian fiction in other languages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it is true that uh, sometimes uh, uh, writers who write in English uh, say and say things which are really are really very arrogant and ignorant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about uh, about uh, uh, writing in Indian languages. Mm-hmm. And especially since I've, I've become engaged with uh, this whole climate thing, I suddenly realized that actually, you know, uh, Indian writing, I would say the Indian vernacular writing mm-hmm. was so much more engaged with issues of environment and, and climate, and in mm-hmm. that way, so much more prescient right. mm-hmm. than the sort of writing that comes out of uh, a purely English-speaking milieu. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very, very... I mean, there's a, such a powerful tradition of writing. In Bengali, for example, I mean, there's a whole tradition of the river novel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, going back a long, long mm-hmm. way. And it so much reflects, uh, actually, the realities of, of our lives, you know. And, uh, you know... It strikes me today that, uh, you know, when I look at the sorts of work that younger uh, Indian uh, uh, writers are doing, often, s- sadly, it has become completely uh, a reflection of what's done uh, in the West. Mm-hmm. That is, it's very urban-centered, yeah. it's very identity-related, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, the world around us has disappeared. Right. There aren't any more river novels, there aren't any more, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, going off of what you just said about like, uh, new writing that's happening, what new or exciting things do you see happening in the contemporary world literature space? You know, if you'd asked me that about <laughs> six months ago, I would have said to you that I've uh, almost stopped reading contemporary writing. Hmm. Because I, for one, really feel that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, if you... Reading the Great Derangement, you can see that the whole climate problem really comes out of modernity, you mm-hmm. know, out of yeah. um, late 18th century onwards. And I think that's the problem also with the forms of uh, literature that come out of uh, 
this period, you know, the novel being foremost among them. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I, I now find myself very much engaged with pre-modern literatures, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, fortunately through Bengali, I have uh, like five centuries of uh, yeah. extremely productive writing right. uh, to engage with, mm-hmm. you know. And I found that very inspirational. And actually, it's absolutely at the heart of this new book. Mm. Gun Island, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Bengali literature of the sixteenth, uh, fifteenth centuries. Uh, I mean, this book is really almost intertextual with some of some of the writings of that period. That sounds amazing. Makes me yeah. even more excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, at the same time, one is co- constantly surprised. Mm-hmm. So, twenty eighteen uh, saw, I think, the. Uh, one of the most important novels of recent times, which is, which is Richard Powers's uh, Overstory, mm. uh, which is really an, an amazing book. And it's a, it's a book which is, uh, uh, which again is profoundly attentive to our moment, our time, mm-hmm, you know, right. at the same time that it's a, a serious literary fiction, mm-hmm. you, yeah. you know. So it's absolutely not, you know, climate fiction. Or, mm-hmm. Right. apocalyptic fiction or any of those things and I think that's a real it's a great achievement and you know what was also very striking about it is that uh, the reception of the book Mm -hmm. because the problem isn't really with writers writers have been trying to write this stuff for a long time you know the problem is just as much with the ecosystem of writing Mm -hmm. you know uh, you know uh, serious uh, serious reviews as I said you know don't engage with some of this writing. But this was not the case with uh, Overstory, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it really represented uh, a sea change, you know, in the way that uh, writing will be going yeah. forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope so, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and thinking back on your own work, um, we're, we're just curious, like, what would you say you're most proud of that, that you've written or what have you enjoyed writing the most? I have to say this book, Gun Island, was for me in many ways uh, the most, uh, the book which, with which I had the most fun, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, you yeah. know, I, I think fun is the wrong word. I mean, it was really incredibly fulfilling and exciting and, you know, right. and I wrote it also in a remarkably short time for me. Uh, usually my books take me three to four years. Mm-hmm. This one took about half that time. Wow. So it was... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, all the ideas that were bubbling in my head, I mean, somehow they, and all, everything that I've been engaged with all over, through my life. I mean, you know, this book, when you read it, you'll see there's a complete continuity with all the work I've done mm-hmm. in the past, uh-huh. including in an antique land. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's completely different as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of the hardest things we generally hear about being a professional writer, and this is something that you mentioned right at the beginning of the interview, is the difficulty of making it to the professional level where you can sustain yourself. And you've done that amazingly. So what uh, what advice do you have for aspiring writers, um, if any? You know, uh, I think I may well be uh, from the last generation of uh, writers who write so-called serious fiction who are Mm -hmm. able to make their living from Mm -hmm. their writing, you know. Uh, Because, of course, I mean, many genre writers will, I mean, especially crime fiction writers and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, because, you know, the spaces are shrinking very dramatically and especially the emergence of, uh, uh, you know, online shopping and so on has has really cut into uh, the uh, the income streams of um, of writers in in so many different ways so i would say to any young person who's who's setting out on this mm-hmm. i would probably the first thing i would probably say to them is yes but keep a day job <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, the second thing i would say is that you have to have many strings to your bow mm. You know, you have to be resourceful. You have to be able to do many different things. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to do journalism. Uh, you have to, um, you're, you know, you have to do many different things, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one interesting thing, though, that has actually emerged in the literary space, which didn't at all exist uh, 20 or 30 years ago, is uh, the whole sort of, I don't know how to call it, uh, It's you could say the lecture circuit uh-huh. or the personal appearance circuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That never existed. I mean, you know, when I was in my teens and 20s, you never imagined meeting a writer. And nor would you want to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's good about meeting the writer? I mean, you've, you've got their book. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's all that what, matters. That's all that matters. <laughs> it just absolutely didn't exist. I mean, I know writers. I remember the, uh, the, very, uh, the, the very eminent uh, American writer, mm-hmm. William Gaddis. Yeah. He was very much a part of that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of, of that uh, mm-hmm. sort of world. And I remember once uh, I was at an event with him uh, and he absolutely flatly refused to read from his book. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he said, no, um, you know, books are meant to be read <laughs> by the reader, <laughs> not yeah. by the writer. Right. But today there's a huge sort of, uh, how shall I say, both a market and an interest mm-hmm. in uh, interacting with writers, mm-hmm. you know. So that's actually become a whole new thing, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Well, and one thing that we ask um, all of our guests is, do you have any reading recommendations for our listeners? And of course, you've mentioned some throughout the the episode, but just wanted to ask you that again. Yeah, uh, uh, well, one, uh, uh, I would absolutely straight away recommend uh, uh, Richard Powers' Overstory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would recommend Annie Prue's um, Bird Cloud, Mm -hmm. another absolutely wonderful book. Uh, Yeah, so... Another book which I've uh, I really love and which was again very very attentive to it to the uh, to the um, physical world if you like mm-hmm. is Graham Swift's Waterland. Ah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I love that book. Mm-hmm. Barbara Kingsolver's um, Flight Behavior, mm-hmm. another wonderful book. So there are you know many wonderful books mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so, so much. It looks like we're we're pushing time here. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful having you, and we are extremely excited to read Gun Island. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a ple- it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for having me. And thanks to our listeners. For those of you who want more information or would like to subscribe to our podcast channel, please visit our website at www.circulatingspaces.com. And thanks for listening, everyone. Stay tuned for our next episode in which we'll be interviewing Fabiana Rodriguez, an interdisciplinary artist and social justice activist. Until next time.